Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Well, it's going alright thanks Ed. How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm good. I uh, have just, like last week we talked about the weather turning and this week has genuinely been very cold. Yeah. In Florida. <laughs> and not, not just like relatively cold where it's actually quite mild but in genuinely like oh everyone's walking around in hoodies and you know kind of bundling up and you know having having to turn the heat on which is uh you know usually uh insane things to want to do in florida but uh yeah it's been it's been very very chilly the last couple of days <laughs> Uh, but I'm sure nothing compared to what you're going through because obviously well. uh, the youth, based on everything I've been hearing, things in the UK are pretty, pretty cold and miserable right now. It's been fortunately cold, crisp and clear over this weekend. <laughs> but I gave blood yesterday, uh, which, oh, cool. which thank you. I think it's really cool. Like just the mm. whole, the whole process is fascinating, right? Yeah. And this is the second time I've successfully donated top tip just drink loads of water but that always leaves me even if it goes well and the nurses are absolutely incredible everyone is great from start to finish even if it goes well and I feel fine I'm also just like oh I do feel quite lightheaded and giddy and I'm very tired now <laughs> um, mm. so it kind of dovetailed very nicely with my intention to hibernate and mm. even though I have um, finished all of succession which I think we're going to talk about a little bit um, today I am now settling into trying to give the crown another go mm. mainly out of curiosity just because I can't think of the last time I saw something that had such a major shift in casting um, yes. even though it's all the same uh, characters and and it's not as acknowledged as the masterstroke to uh, essentially recast Greg in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend um, it's like he's an entirely mm -hmm. different person. Everyone seems to be doing very well so far, but it is essentially a soap, and I'm a Republican, I swear. Um, and <laughs> the good kind, we should point out, for our American listeners. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry, I keep forgetting that that means something entirely different where you are. Yes, I'm, I'm like... You could call me like really old school American <laughs> in mm -hmm. terms of when I say Republican rather than modern day. Yeah. Yeah. It's and it's an interesting watch given recent events in the UK, shall we say. Mm. Yeah. But it's all very Olivia Coleman doing a fantastic stiff upper lip. Uh, Helena Bonham Carter with permission from Psychic to play Princess Margaret. The main thing that I really enjoy about The Crown is it's the Game of Thrones effect, right? Like, I'm quite used to all of the main characters and the main cast. But what is such delight about The Crown is that I think the casting is so well done because you will see people from TV you haven't seen for ages. Like, Marsha Williams, Baroness, who becomes goes on to become Baroness Volkander, is played by Sinead Matthews, who mm. is not in enough stuff. And... I first sort of discovered her. The first thing I saw her in was Ideal, BBC Three. She's Jenny in oh, Ideal yeah. and absolutely wonderful. And I'm just like, oh my God, Sinead Matthews is on 
TV, this is great, good. And, and you know, Ben Daniels is playing Lord Snowden this time round. So it's people with, like, it's just the, the kind of best of what acting across our collection of islands has to offer, not just the kind of, not just the jewels in the crown. <laughs> so that is something really enjoyable as well, even though, yeah, I could really do without a monarchy sooner <laughs> rather than later and i can't tell whether it garners sympathy for them or not i think i i think is essentially a soap loosely based on living characters although one episode i just finished uh, just there does seem to be um harold wilson possibly comforting and reassuring the queen that she might be a bit of a psychopath uh <laughs> at least that was my reading of it ed Mm, yeah, yeah. The, the monarchy are tremendous content, um, <laughs> if nothing else. The OG um, content providers. <laughs> yeah, the uh, boy, the tabloids. The tabloids wouldn't uh, wouldn't exist in their current form if they didn't have the monarchy and or just the the general uh, nobility to kind of uh, expose and comment on. Yeah, and they'll always have uh, Princess Diana, so I don't see them stopping anytime soon. Oh yeah, the, that's key. The, she's keeping the express going. <laughs> she really is. I I haven't given blood in quite a long time, mainly because uh, uh, British people are legally prohibited from donating blood in America because of uh, BSE. Of course. BSE square. Yeah, that that's a that's been on the books for quite a while now, and I'm not sure if that will ever be overturned. But yes, the, as, as far as I'm aware, British people still not allowed to donate. It, it, British people who lived in the UK during the years when mad cow disease was its height, I should say. I think, like, British people who are presumably British people who have been born this century are allowed to <laughs> donate blood. But uh, no one who may have happened to eat a hamburger in the 90s is allowed to. I think it's the same in Ireland as well, you know, and I'm, I'm pleased that the Irelands get to, <laughs> the Irish get to say, like, Nah, Brits, we're, we're good for your blood, actually. You never know, Ed, when you're next over, treat yourself, yeah. pop along. We'll, we'll, we'll yeah. just recycle all our mad cow blood together. It'll be fine. Yeah, it's like, uh, 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 you know, blood tourism. I think there's a new market for it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so... It got we'll dark, go Ed. It the... got dark quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, blood tourism is basically just the plot of Dracula, I guess. So, <laughs> so we'll go on to the news for this week. Uh, we'll briefly touch on probably like the biggest piece of news that happened this week, which was the launch of Disney Plus, which happened on uh, Tuesday, I believe, and uh, has been, apart from a few technical issues, which uh, is you know is going to happen when you release a service that's you know everyone's really excited for. I think they had like a load of people had trouble logging in on the day that it loaded up but that's because like millions of people are all trying to use the service at the same time and i think anyone who's ever been uh, on the inside of uh, the release of a you know anything of a comparable scale like you know i've been on, involved in a bunch of projects that i've seen kind of fairly big uh, launches where suddenly hundreds of thousands or millions of people are trying to access something at the same time and uh it doesn't matter how much kind of preparation you put into it there's going to be problems with it because uh, it's hard to kind of prepare for those sort of things. And but anyway, you know, like the, it launched. It was fairly. It's been fairly uh, successful so far. I think for for Disney, it's 
there's been a few controversies. The fact that they're showing the old, weird, cropped versions of Simpsons episodes mm. that they got from when they bought F- uh, Fox and got Simpsons World, which they've said they're going to uh, fix at some point, which would be nice because I know that was one of the things that really annoyed everyone who signed up for Simpsons World was that you could watch all the episodes of The Simpsons but all the old ones were stretched or cropped and you lost a lot of jokes and information which, you know, for a show that was always very dense with visual information and jokes uh, was kind of a shame. Um, But one of the things about it that I've found very interesting, uh, I I myself haven't signed up for the service because not much on it at the moment particularly kind of appeals to me, but one of the things that I found quite interesting about it was uh, a lot of people at my work have signed up for it and they've been kind of like talking about it and a lot of people seemed very surprised by the fact that Disney have gone to a weekly release model with their series. You know, the first episode of The Mandalorian, their Star Wars series was up when the service debuted and then the second one's just been released uh, this weekend and obviously that's what they're going forward and uh, some people at work seemed kind of confused by that because I think everyone's kind of got used to this whole Netflix model of you know you release everything all at once and people kind of binge through it but I think opinion in the television industry has kind of shifted against the binge model uh, recently primarily because the problem with it in terms of like the things that help you grow your subscriber base which is people talking about the stuff you have and engagement and all these horrible buzz marketing words but things that are genuinely important for building a brand really don't kind of get generated as much with the binge model because discussion is limited to like the two weeks after a thing comes out and then after then it pretty much completely dries up whereas something like you've mentioned it uh, a minute ago but something like succession the hbo show which is a show that doesn't get view huge viewership numbers in the u.s uh, it's kind of a, a very niche concern compared to some of the other stuff that HBO puts out and certainly in compared to something like Stranger Things on Netflix but as that was airing the second series of that was airing like every episode was discussed endlessly online on Twitter articles were written about it there was a real kind of like buzz and discussion about it and that led to more people checking the show out and uh, presumably more people like checking out other HBO products or you know signing up for HBO just to watch Succession and uh, I think that what Disney are doing you know going back to the weekly model is maybe realizing that in terms of sustaining interest in your product and maybe kind of persuading people to sign up who are perhaps skeptical initially is to have like eight nine ten weeks worth of discussion about how good the Mandalorian is as opposed to like a week after which everyone kind of stops talking about it in any kind of major way. Yes, and I think the other thing with Succession as well is not only is it released kind of week by week, but it's also, it's not that same kind of Netflix model where, I mean, bar sort of time zone differences, that everything appears on the same day, on the same week. Like Succession, there was, it was a bit out of sync, I think. And that's the thing about Twitter, and I like between sort of like the UK and the US and kind of the majority of like English language speaking Twitter anyway like the more and more I heard about it the more I was desperate to see succession because Mm. people were talking about like like memes were popping up and it was like impressively spoiler free it was just more about like the tone and the characters and 
people being like, oh yeah, that's such a shiv move. And I was like, what's a shiv move? Isn't a shiv just like <laughs> a knife you make in prison? Like what? I do, what? So that kind of, that really sort of made me, yeah, jonesing, jonesing to find out how I could watch it in the UK once once it was released. And thanks to Now TV, um, I could. And I think that's it. Like thinking about Netflix, like looking at The Good Place again, because that's always been... Mm episode by episode and it feels particularly poignant with it being the final series now and I remember that with Crazy Ex-Girlfriend being the same and I think it is realising because I, I know myself like I if if there is an entire series there to watch for me, hello The Crown I can sort of push myself and try and watch as much of it as I can in a day but I'll also it will just engage my interest more if I'm I'm basically some choices taken out of my hands and I will mm. be more engaged and I will be more likely to talk about it if it is just kind of week by week maybe not the crown maybe not the perfect example but you know what I mean Ed yeah the crown there's not necessarily quite the sense of mystery about oh what's going to happen next nah. it's like I mean a lot of that stuff's on the record about what happens next in the crown but I, I definitely feel as if it lends itself to shows like Succession and, from my understanding, The Mandalorian, where the stories in each episode are fairly self-contained. They often end with not necessarily cliffhangers, but maybe events or character moments that make you really excited to see what the next thing is going to do. Certainly, I think the thing that ends the first episode of The Mandalorian, which I won't spoil here, but anyone who's... Uh, been on social media knows about the thing that happens at the end of the mandalorian and has probably seen uh, adorable screenshots of it i think like that would have had way less of an impact if you know the whole series had been released at once and that was yeah. just a thing that people blazed through on their way to watching the second episode like the fact that you know you, you see that character at the end of the episode it kind of completely changes what maybe the show is going for or what people were expecting the show to be and then you have to sit for a few days with it and think okay what's going to happen next like it's basic you know elemental serial storytelling it really benefits those kind of shows to give people time between them and you know people can save up and watch them all in one go if they want once they're all released but i do feel like one of the things that i've always liked about tv and particularly um you know certainly fantasy television like the heyday of lost was that sense of anticipation for the next episode the the theorizing online discussing with people oh my god what does this mean what's going to happen next uh all of which is completely lost if you're just watching the whole show over like a 12-hour binge because you know there is no next <laughs> until like the next year when the next season drops yeah. um which is a very different experience and i think is from a you know business analytics kind of perspective i think maintaining a consistent high level of interest for like a month and a half is probably a lot more valuable for disney in building its subscriber base and you know getting people excited for whatever it does next with the service than you know everything it comes out over a weekend pretty much everyone watches it and then uh if they're like me they forget most of the salient details by like two weeks later for sure i think you're right and i think that point is really interesting that like what about the detail it's not just about kind of thinking sinking into a story and expecting about the characters and really letting a show kind of live in you from week to week mm. but actually yeah to have that quality of attention for, for an episode because that's the thing with the crown like 
I'm astounded by its production values, but I'm also entirely numb to them because mm. it's all just there and it's just kind of rolling on. Whereas if it were only something kind of week to week, maybe I would actually just give it give it more attention and properly watch it. Mm. Speaking of, of Netflix as we were, um, it was announced that Roma, Alfonso Cuaron's uh, Oscar-winning Bilden's uh, Roaming from last year, which uh, debuted on Netflix and, you know, kind of like was the, the subject of a lot of uh, discourse last year about various elements of, you know, its storytelling and its release and things like that. Uh, it was announced that Roma is being added to the Criterion Collection, which I find to be uh, incredibly interesting because obviously uh, Netflix do put out some of their stuff on physical media. I think all of their shows get put out on physical media because they still, obviously they still have their disc service and a lot of people experience their shows with that and you can buy like Orange is the New Black on DVD and like Barnes and Noble and things like that. But I don't think they put out any of their original movies on physical media and they didn't seem to have any plans to. So it's interesting that they are kind of outsourcing that in a certain way and handing it over to Criterion who obviously have this fairly uh, illustrious reputation as kind of a of canon builders really of like what are the big significant works of of cinema um but also i think you know maybe could be read as an admission on their part that there are limits to what their original movies that you know kind of debut on the streaming services can actually uh, achieve in terms of like their broader cultural uh, footprint and that maybe uh, released pairing up with Criterion to put out something like Roma which has been their biggest certainly awards and critical success so far is maybe an, an admission that they need to do something else to prolong the lives of these movies that otherwise seem to get pretty badly swamped on their uh, on their streaming service yeah for sure it's I think you're right I think there is this kind of like swamped is the word isn't it and I still haven't seen Roma. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. I don't remember if we discussed it much last year. I think it's like, it's like a very well-made film. It's very well acted, but it kind of feels to me a little too stately for what uh, Quaron is good at, which I think is, you know, kind of imbuing stories with a certain kind of messy humanity. Certainly if you look at his other, like his previous, like lovely uh, Mexican personal movie Itumama Tambian which yes. is a movie that's very very kind of like shaggy and rough around the edges but kind of vibrant and alive and Roma kind of doesn't really have that uh, which is a shame but it is you know a kind of a, a beautiful looking movie and you know a, a major work by a major filmmaker so it's, it's kind of nice uh, even if I don't you know kind of like adore the movie in any great sense um, it is nice that it's going to be put out you know, in a package that's presumably going to be loaded with care and that's going to be presented in a format that will allow people to enjoy, you know, it's particularly it's black and white cinematography, which is probably not helped by Netflix's streaming service, which as anyone who's kind of watched any black and white movies on that service will know, sometimes really struggles with black and different kind of tones of black. Yeah. Our next uh, story, some big news this week. 
big, big news in the world of cinema. We got our look at the newly redesigned Sonic the Hedgehog, uh, debuted in the second trailer for the movie, after the first one was met with utter horror by pretty much everyone who watched it uh, when that debuted, God, like six months ago or something. <laughs> it's, it feels like a lifetime ago that we got the look at the horribly malformed original design for the character of Sonic. Uh, the studio said, okay, uh, we heard you, we're going to redesign it and presumably put the poor animators through hell to get them to re uh, redo the movie with an entirely new model who actually looks like Sonic the Hedgehog <laughs> as opposed to a kind of like poorly remembered back of a bar mat sketch of Sonic <laughs> the Hedgehog, which is kind of the vibe the, the original trailer had. We heard your global reaching screams... <laughs> and we are taking that as feedback and changing it. Yeah, I mean, what what should we call the first Sonic? It it's just so can't even think of a name. Just just the first, shall we? The first he <laughs> he who must not be continued to be animated. Yeah, <laughs> I just he looked like the Christopher Nolan gritty reboot of Sonic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, why? What, not only why did he have teeth, but of course, why were they so white and and straight and human? And he just looked sort of skinny, but in a sad way. Like he, he mm. it didn't look like his natural gait. It was like, who hurt you? And why? Why are you not being fed? It was grim as anything. And then looking at this Sonic, you're like, yeah, of course. Why not be? Because it. it that's it. Like it's not even that. He who must not continue to be animated wasn't actually well done. It was just mm. completely mismatching the whole tone of the film, and this this uh, Sonic two point does have the big eyes and the cutesy kind of round face, but again, not so much so that it then feels like like he's a Care Bear. Do you know I mean that's mm. the scale, really, isn't it? You want a Sonic somewhere between a Care Bear and Slender Man, preferably more towards the Care Bear end. Yeah, and it's also it's also interesting in terms of like the design for humours not continued to be drawn, which was that it seemed like okay, they're trying to maybe go for a realistic Sonic, which is insane, <laughs> just on the face of it. Yeah, those blue hedgehogs you see. <laughs> jumping about you know speeding through the woods yep yeah 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 and they they seem to be saying trying to do like okay this is like what would what would sonic look like in our world which is just like not a great place to start from nope but what i found really interesting in this trailer is it showcases a lot more of jim carrey as dr robotnik and yes as i was watching that it's like why would you think that you needed to make Sonic more realistic when you have this like completely daffy, goofy, cartoonish performance as the villain. Like it just it doesn't didn't really make any sense when everything else in it seems to be going for something so outlandish to be like, yeah, let's try and tone down this iconic character and redesign him for a new audience or whatever. Uh, it, it was it was very very strange, and the movie uh, still doesn't look particularly good um yeah and it's it certainly seems like they're giving jim carrey a lot of leeway <laughs> which is a dangerous yeah. thing to do i cannot wait ed i cannot wait for the documentary to come out in like 10 15 years of how he went so method into robotnik <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be great you know yeah he was just 
cramming mice into robot suits just to kind of like see what it was like and to really get into the mind of the character. But yeah, it's it, it at least looks like palatable now. Like it really yeah. does seem as if if someone said to me, okay, there's going to be a Sonic movie and Sonic comes to our world, like, okay, this is what that would look like as opposed to before where um, I, I like the logic for why he looked the way that he looked was just like really baffling. But yeah, I'm st- still not entirely sure that a remake of, of Hop for a new dem- generation is really going to pay dividends. But at, at the very least, like you could watch and think, okay, I could see this being a successful movie as opposed to the old one, which seemed like a movie that would only benefit from people going to watch in, in sheer uh, horror Jaws Agape. <laughs> and our final bit of news is uh, the announcement that we're getting a new Paul Thomas Anderson movie. And uh, you and I obviously <sighs> talked a lot about PTA over the last kind of year or so. Uh, very, very into him and everything that he does, um, particularly um, post Phantom Thread. And I am very excited to see what he does with his next movie, which is going to be a movie set in a high school in the 1970s, presumably drawing upon his own kind of life experiences growing up in in the valley in LA and you know that's that's very much his era and while on the one hand it you kind of would like or certainly I would like to see him maybe make a movie set in the modern era again you know because it's obviously of the movies that he's he's made only three of them take place in the modern day hard eight magnolia and punch drunk love everything has been a period movie Mm. and it would kind of be interesting to see him try and take on a, a modern story uh, I am always excited to see whatever he does. I find him to be such an incredibly uh, exciting and unpredictable filmmaker in terms of you know what rhythms he uses in each movie and what approach he takes. And coming off of the back of of Phantom Thread, uh, I'm just like super excited to see whatever he does next. Same, and I think the other thing is, I've not really seen PTA work with children or like much younger mm. actors particularly as a protagonist but then i always yeah. feel like whatever the premise or the announcement of what um pta's next film is going to be that's it it is and it isn't like remember when phantom thread was announced and it was like oh mm. look into the fashion world of, of the 50s and you're like well yeah but also really no <laughs> that's not what it was about <laughs> at all so i'm yeah, I'm I'm stoked. I, I I always will be stoked for a new PTA film now. That's that's me done. And I think just Phantom Thread was just oh, so so incredible. Um I would love it if Daniel Day Lewis comes back to play the child actor and retirement <laughs> was just uh, that was all that was all part of it, you know. Mm. So yeah, but I'm I'm interested to see and I just, and I know, I, oh God, I hope he won't. I know he won't because he's PTA, but I just, I don't want it to be a kind of boyhood sort of, I don't know, because he, he grew up in a sort of kind of entertainment-ish family. Like his dad was a an announcer, I think. Uh, yeah, he was like a, a local TV guy. Right, yeah. So I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm I'm intrigued as ever. Bring it on. I can't wait until casting announcements get made. I think that's going to give us a bit more, you know. Yeah, uh, probably the Heim sisters are going to be in it somewhere. 
because uh, he likes working with them a lot these days. Yep, 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 yep. And and hopefully, as a lot of people have pointed out, this will make good on Tiffany Haddish getting his phone number and maybe maybe that leading to them working together because uh, I think that would be a real interesting combination. For sure. So our main topic this week uh, is movies with small casts. And this uh, was inspired by the fact that I finally got out to see The Lighthouse, the Robert Eggers movie starring Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. And although there are a number of smaller roles in the movie, kind of uh, characters that you see more or less just at the beginning of the movie as Pattinson is arriving on the island to, you know, help man this lighthouse with Willem Dafoe and uh, you know, kind of that's that's but for the most part, other than those those characters, it's pretty much just Dafoe and Pattinson on screen for the whole time, and they're certainly the only characters who have any lines. And I as I was watching the movie, I thought it was very uh, interesting in terms of like the movie itself it's kind of a very rigorous formal uh, exercise and in a way that I, I personally found a little bit kind of harmful to the overall story like it felt very considered and mannered where in a way that kind of contrasted heavily with these two kind of like wild central performances from the two main actors but having said that you know those performances were so invigorating and seeing them kind of bounce off of each other as you know the only people that they interacted with over the entire movie more or less was was really captivating and it kind of got me thinking about other movies that only employ a handful of actors and you know how different filmmakers employ that approach to making a movie what are the advantage of it what are the uh, what are the disadvantages and and so yeah so so that's kind of where uh, I would like to kind of like start from like what movies do we feel really make good use of having a very small cast? Which I, I do think, you know, for my um, problems with The Lighthouse overall, I think it really makes good on the fact that, you know, it has two terrific actors who are able to kind of like really build off of each other's energy over the course of the movie. For sure. The first films that came to my mind that have really small casts, Buried, Ryan Reynolds, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lot, uh, with Tom Hardy, Tape, Richard Linklater, um, maybe mm-hmm. with, uh, Uma Thurman, amongst others, and Rope. And yes. I thought, right, so that's that. Those are all films with like one, one arguably buried in Locke are actually like very similar because you just have one person on screen for the entire time, but various voices in the voice cast. But you 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 stay with your one protagonist, and then Tape and Rope each have three. I think that's it. Although more are implied, but never actually seen. So it's kind of who, who I would say that the cast is counting on who you actually see and are asked to engage with um, throughout the mm. film. Also Pi, actually, sorry, that was another one. Because Pi feels like oh, a yes. very small cast. And then it struck me like, well, all of those are sort of suspense thriller style, like genre wise. And I and I struggle to think of like other films that have very small casts. And I think partly, even if you only have like a a small group, you know, one to two main characters, even in comedies, like you look at um, Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder and the films that mm. they made in the seventies. Really, that's kind of like a small cast, but because they're so set in the world, 
you 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 are just aware of other people i think yeah so even if the main cast is small if it's set in and amongst the world i don't think that really counts as a small cast and so mm. and so it's it's a struggle to think of like what other genres other than like suspense and thriller do you really that, that i think are truly cinematic even though rope and tape both feel like plays basically because it's yes a small group of people in a small room and there's lots of overlapping dialogue and i think really maybe the only other i'll go into more detail but this is more of a kind of like scattershot oh yeah who what what things could i think of the only other sort of really small cast i could i could think of is all of spalding gray's monologues with jonathan demi but even they they are essentially as we've discussed in previous episodes ed is that not really a filmed play but it was interesting because it was the only one that i could think of that even though it has play-like elements you know swimming to cambodia isn't a thriller (laughs) yeah uh in certainly in putting together my list a lot of the ones that i i came up with were also uh in the kind of like thriller vein some of them more more or less serious than others um sleuth i think is probably a very good example um only two two performances in that uh, in the original version from the 70s it's michael Caine and Laurence olivier in the remake from the 2000s michael Caine and jude law and you know that's pretty much it with that's kind of a more or at least the 70s version is more kind of like fun and playful the this 2000s one is kind of very dour but it is still like a there is still a thriller element to it because it's a case of two men together having conversations one of whom has ill designs upon the other and then you know kind of uh, things progressing from there in ways that are yeah very fun and enjoyable and the dialogue's very kind of snappy and witty but it is still fundamentally at its core is still um, a thriller mm-hmm. uh, in, in terms of movies that i guess kind of don't fall under that or in the sense that they are not trying to generate a sense of dread in the audience Oh, actually, and also in terms of like putting their together this list, I, like you, kind of excluded any movies that, you know, like maybe they have like two or three main characters, but then there's a bunch of side characters who kind of like veer in and out. I meant just for ones that, you know, where the core is like like less than five, I'd say, like five main characters and then there's not really anyone else there. I found that there were some uh, character studies that I think work really well if you have the small number. Um, Robert Altman's Secret Honour. I think is a very good one. It's mm. essentially like some of the others we mentioned, based on a play, uh, starring Philip Baker Hall as Richard Nixon, kind of talking into his tape recorder as his uh, as the the world is crumbling down around him, as his presidency is kind of in its death throes, which I think is a really fascinating movie and really enjoyable, mainly because you know the script is good. Philip Baker Hall's such an amazing actor, but it's essentially taking someone who was uh, much psychoanalyzed by kind of popular culture both when he was in office and in the years since uh who was this like really captivating shakespearean figure of american politics kind of a brilliant politician who was taken down by his you know his kind of vices and his kind of inhibitions and his inability to kind of control the darker side of his nature and who obviously did tremendous damage to the country as a result but he, I think there it works well because he is someone who you could imagine and you know there's plenty of evidence to this imagine someone just kind of like talking into a tape recorder and kind of venting about his 
the slights against him, his enemies, and like really kind of like taking the world to task in his own kind of like private moments. And I think that's a case of a movie that technically isn't a thriller. Like there's no sense of danger to it. It's not like he is uh, being menaced by another person or there's not this kind of sense of looming threat. It's just sit being uh, just kind of like sitting with him for, you know, 90 minutes and having him kind of like rant about all of the things that are bothering him in a way that is like really fascinating. Oh, and you know what that reminds me of? Sounds brilliant, Ed. Sorry, I just uh, had to say. I, I'm not aware of Secret Honor, but I really want to see that now. Also, mm. but hearing you describe it reminded me of my dinner with Andre. Yes, that's also on my list. One that's definitely not a thriller. No, <laughs> not at all. I mean, scintillating intellectual conversation, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But yeah, one which I've only seen in clips. I've still not seen in full. But I think what's interesting is that the idea, some people might say, oh, why would I want to go and see a film where it's two people talking at dinner for just under two hours? And it's like, well, what do we do with our friends? <laughs> mm. Is that not like the kind of, even though I know My Dinner with Andre isn't exactly real time, it pretty much is. It's close to it, yeah. And I think that's interesting. Like, not only is it a film with a small, with a, like an intimate, like literally pretty much a two-hander, it's also mm-hmm. slow and yeah. it's but it but it breathes into that space it's not a real-time thriller like let's say lock or buried and yes i am trying to segue from my dinner with andre to lock and buried because <laughs> they're two films that i find really interesting i have to say buried i saw in the cinema when it came out and i was absolutely gripped and i think that is because buried came out in about 2011 yeah 20 2010 maybe yeah around about that time and it is and 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 kids just so you know that was before streaming really really took off like i think i would discover netflix maybe 18 months later i mean Mm. we were all you know passing things to each other illegally on hard drives but there wasn't really (laughs) like as much you know bbc iplayer had been around for a while but all of that preamble is to say, essentially, like, I was still going to the cinema an awful lot yeah. to see films. And Buried, I thought, was a stroke of genius because you could only really tell that in a film and in the cinema, that story as effectively as you could because it works with the darkness. Because Ryan mm. Reynolds uh, wakes up very alive. <laughs> that's, that's the premise. And we have real time of him with his phone trying to save his own life, really. Mm. And I found it absolutely gripping. The politics of it, I I can't remember thinking too much about it at the time, but it is an American American citizen in in Iraq. Um, I think he's just a contractor, you know? He's not like a military man or anything. I think he's a he. It has been a while since I saw it, but I think he's a military contractor. So maybe it suggests that he's involved in like a what are they called black Blackstone, Blackwater, whatever that 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 kind of like private militia is. Got you right. Okay, so he is still. It has it has been a while. It has been a while, but what I do so yeah. Basically, I'm saying that because I'm like ah sorry, I'm not sure whether I need to give you a disclaimer on the politics or not, but tread carefully. 
but I remember just as a physical sensation in the cinema, like absolutely gripping. And again, it it doesn't really feel it's not it's not a horror film; it is like a pure thriller. Whereas, and that is real time. Um, just about. I think there's a couple of bits which aren't quite real time, but Locke as well is pretty much real time. And I found Locke one of the dreariest, most boring, (laughs) (laughs) frustrating watches of my life, which. I did not expect because I think Tom Hardy is a really electrifying, or at least at that point, maybe Locke was the turning point. Up until then, I'd found him really engaging and interesting. Um, Mm. But maybe that was it. Maybe just him in a car for like an hour and a half. I don't know. It just didn't really, I don't know. Because the premise is quite interesting, like in real time on one journey, his life falls around him in a series of phone calls. But then I kind of felt like it almost felt like a BT advert from back in the day. I just (laughs) kept expecting it to end sooner than it did. So I'm not quite sure why Locke didn't work for me and yet Buried really did. Maybe if I'd seen Locke in the cinema, it would have been different. Mm, Because again, that's a containment sort of... And you're just like, well, here I am in the car with Tom Hardy. <laughs> I've got mm. no choice to open the door and roll out. <laughs> I um, I remember enjoying Locke when I saw it, but mainly because I was watching it and just thinking, what what is this? <laughs> like, thinking this is such a weird idea for a movie. Not just the idea of a guy in a you know a movie unfolding entirely within a car. And, you know, like a guy having conversations of, you know, kind of like tantamount importance to his life. That's like a perfectly good, like you say, it's a very, very good premise. But like the specifics of it are so strange. He's constantly talking about a concrete pour. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I blocked out the building specific actual work calls. Oh, my God. And him talking about how it's the largest uh, pour in Europe outside of nuclear facilities. And like, they're just like... (laughs) It, it just kind of was like maybe Stephen Knight had read an article about concrete pores and like found it very interesting and decided to work it into a pre-existing script he already had. I don't know. <laughs> but like there are lots of things about it that are just like super strange in the in the specifics. And that's kind of I think that's that's mainly the thing that I really enjoyed it. It's like I was just really trying to figure out why exactly this film got made in this particular way with this particular kind of subject matter that particular welsh accent that tom hardy is putting on for the entirety of it bold bold choice it's just a movie of really odd choices and that alone i think stopped it from being boring but it it didn't engage me in the same way that buried did which uh, i didn't see in the cinema uh, because i don't think i would have been able to handle it i watched it on dvd where it was very very tense and very uh, claustrophobic so i imagine being in a cinema screen where you are also being enclosed in the darkness uh was probably a really really oppressive experience <laughs> but in the best possible way yeah uh, another uh non-thriller movie that i was thinking of in terms of you know trying to think of 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 examples of movies that have a very very small cast and this one is interesting because the cast is very small, but the number of characters is large, which is uh, Charlie Kaufman's Anomalisa, which is 
a movie Ooh. with three principal um, actors, um, David Thewlis and Jennifer Jason Lee being the, the main ones, and then Tom Noonan playing every other character <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> and he pulls um, it off. I absolutely love Tom Noonan. Mm, yeah, wonderful character, actor, and it's a wonderful showcase for him because when I say everyone else, I mean everyone. He is playing... Uh, men, he's playing women, he's playing adults, he's playing children, he's playing like close friends of people, he's playing like complete strangers to them, and I think he is entirely convincing in all of them. And the kind of whole thing with that movie is like David Thewlis's character is a is someone who is so consumed by this kind of sense of of depression, of detachment from life, of this real kind of sense of of, uh, of the entire world just being so samey and boring and completely without any interest that everyone sounds the same to him and so everyone sounds like tom noonan except for this woman he meets who's forced by jennifer jason lee and the the interesting about the movie is that you know by the end of it you realize oh he's the problem <laughs> like it's not it's not uh, it's not the entire world it's like everything is rooted with him but i think that's a really interesting example of someone taking the small cast idea and applying it in a way that feels somewhat grander because it's not all taking place in like as some of these movies uh, do, that's not taking place in a single location or whatever. It's you know taking place uh, in a, like a bunch of locations within this hotel where Thulis's character is staying for a conference. It makes good use of the animation because it can be really uh, expressive and weird at, at certain points and surreal. Um, but at its core, it is you know these two characters making connection and then the entire rest of the world being represented by. Uh, a single voice and I thought that was a really interesting probably the most inventive uh, approach to using a small cast of of all the movies that I've found in researching the topic absolutely also one of the things I thought was quite interesting in terms of in terms of movies that you know maybe only have one or two characters uh, there's a lot of survival movies um, yes where you know a character or a handful of characters are placed in an extreme situation and have to fend for themselves. Uh, something like Hell in the Pacific, the John Borman movie, where it's just Lee Marvin and Toshiro Mifune stuck on an island for the entirety of it as uh, an American soldier and a Japanese soldier in World War II. I, think, I believe it's World War II, so they are obviously at odds with each other to begin with. They don't speak the same language, but they are both in a situation where they are forced to uh, survive, and I think it makes very good use of just having two amazing actors of their generation in close proximity in an extreme situation i think you get a lot of a lot of tension from that and then in more recent years i think the advances in obviously in visual technology and effects really allow for these kind of stories to get a little grander than that so something like we mentioned alfonso Cuaron earlier gravity which is a movie that features yeah pretty much for most of it just sandra bullock on her own uh, george clooney there for a little bit and um, a few other voices, I believe, heard over the radio. But for the most part, that is one person being put through the ringer of this really horrible situation. Yeah, and Sandra Bullock is, of all the people to be stuck with for a couple of hours, she's just incredible in that. Like, I wasn't, I wasn't super, like, bowled over by gravity in terms of its story. Like, it's very... It's quite classic, but it's really well done. Like it, it didn't really push any envelopes for me. But she is incredible. The mm. cinematography is stunning. Again, 
a really good one to be in the cinema for. And you know what? Yes. Speaking of uh, space and sort of survival, uh, that makes me think of Moon, Ed. Mm, yes. Which, again, doesn't really... is interesting because even though it's Sam Rockwell, it's multiple Sam Rockwells. And mm-hmm. to be faced with pretty much just one character, um, the unfortunate inclusion of Kevin Spacey, and uh, Caio Scodelario, it's, it is really pretty much just Sam Rockwell. Um, but then, yeah, the idea of what what is what is the self? Um, mm. Clones are they are they really you? Hmm. Hmm. I'm sorry, I wasn't crazy about Moon when I saw it, and everyone still raves about it. I love Sam Rockwell, but I'm just a little bit like, ah, oh, yeah, just more copies of one white man. That's what. That's that's you know the core of existential thought. Yep. I uh I I quite enjoyed Moon when I watched it. I remember just being really annoyed by the ending. Like when yeah. I was beginning, I mean literally the last fifteen seconds of the movie when spoilers one of the Rockwell clones escapes back to Earth and there's like this like radio chatter which is all about which is like a bunch of news reports of the time like people being shocked at this happening or whatever and it just kind of raised a lot of questions that don't really factor into the rest of the movie and it kind of made me annoyed that the you know because there was this whole sense of like well this seems like a thing that would be known about why is this yeah. a secret <laughs> why is everyone horrified by it um it yeah. seemed it was very very odd and totally um, unnecessary like it could have been stronger without the kind of ah and then what but but what would everyone back at home think it's like well that's not the point like there's there's probably enough if you feel like you need to slam that in at the end, was there enough to ponder on throughout the prior mm. sort of like a hundred minutes or so? Who knows? Yeah, but I do, I do, uh, I do enjoy it. Again, that's kind of like one that I think kind of overlaps a couple of the different kind of subgenres of stuff, the, the movies that really work as a small cast, which is that it's sort of a survival movie because obviously he's up there on his own, things go wrong, and then another clone kind of gets awakened and. Uh, so then it becomes a bit more of a character study and a thriller as they're trying to think, you know, how do we get out of this situation? What does this all, what does this all mean? But yeah, it's like, it's very much a movie that I remember watching once or twice and thinking, okay, sure, that's, that's perfectly fine. (laughs) It wasn't kind of, it wasn't a movie that I I went particularly nuts over in a way that a lot of people did. I, I think it being, you know, an original kind of small mid-budget scale science movie, a science fiction movie probably gets it a lot of um, a lot of leeway with people. And it did you... did look really impressive considering what mm. what it was. And that poster is great. You know, it's not yeah. to say that it's not without its merits, but I just don't think it was quite like it's like you you've all seen Tarkovsky, right? <laughs> like <laughs> this isn't mm. <laughs> this isn't new. Speaking of clones, uh, the one I love. With, oh yeah, um, Elizabeth Moss and Mark Duplass. Yep, uh, which I think is again quite an interesting, quirky little uh, little filmio. I I like it. I think it's a curio. Again, it's not. Um, I don't think it's as mind bending as maybe it likes to think that it is. But I do think it's a nice allegory for uh, for relationships, really. Mm, I think it definitely falls under like that category of movies that you watch and you think this is this is like a really good Twilight Zone premise. And I don't mean that in a dismissive way. It's just kind of like oh, you okay. watch and you think, okay, this would be like a, a really, really good episode of the Twilight Zone. 
that maybe doesn't quite sustain a feature length, but obviously benefits a lot from having two fantastic actors and being uh, pretty pretty well directed and kind of really making good on what is a very kind of interesting and intriguing premise. For sure. And I think it's a nice, like, and I haven't seen, because um, Mark Duplass is also with uh, Sarah Paulson in Blue Jay, is it? I mm. think, and you, you have a couple of like, obviously, I guess in small casts, you've got um, not just sort of survival and suspense, but also romantic films, which some would argue are a mix of survival and suspense, <laughs> depending on your personal experience of romance. And so in that category, it, it's normally kind of like the walk and talk. So you've got mm. um, In Search of a Midnight Kiss, which yes. I still think is a really wonderful film and um, mm. well worth well worth checking out. Of course, um, Before Sunrise, the, yeah. um, the, the sort of paradigm, and Before Sunset, whereas Before Midnight, I think actually is markedly different precisely because we break away from Jesse and Celine and just the two of them and we actually have more of like, it's their kids, it's their friends, it's their entire world, rather than these two incredibly intense meetings within which they seem to pitch their whole lives on like mm-hmm. there's there's romance and then there's recklessness um and i say this as a reckless romantic myself but <laughs> jesus guys come on uh was there another one that skipped my mind oh there's there's which, uh, there's a couple that i haven't seen yet but i'm aware of like duck butter is it called mm. with um elias shawcat um yes. But yeah, but but generally it is a kind of oh I have bumped into this beautiful stranger and we're going to walk around the city for a day and will will we will we not? Um, mm. It's kind of a good small because you you you've got to have momentum and I think that's it. Like with just two people, the the nice thing is though is that also I think because and I'm going to quote um, the the genius um, they came together. It was like the city was another character <laughs> because you have like in such a midnight kiss, it's all about LA and um, before sunrise, before sunset, uh, before sunset. Sorry, of Vienna and Paris, like respectively. Mm. You've you've got a sense of the world, and there is momentum, and there is exploration. So they don't feel like plays essentially because their scale still feels significant. Yeah, and uh, another movie in that vein that uh, I I really really like uh, was Barry Jenkins's first movie, uh, Medicine for Melancholy, Ooh, which it's very very good. That one takes place in San Francisco, where again the movie is very much a character in the the story, but where uh, it also fuels a lot of the conversations. And there, I think one thing's different is that the two characters in it, it's the night after they've kind of like hooked up and they're kind of like hanging out together. So there's not, it's not so much the romantic thing as so much as it is two people having shared a moment of intimacy, kind of like spending the day together. And a lot of the conversation they have as two black people in a city that historically has been very black, but at the time the movie was made, which I think was about 2008 or so Mm. was beginning to go through this hyper gentrification 
that you know kind of came with the tech boom that is obviously still going on and that gentrification has only got kind of stronger and stronger as you see in something like the last black man in san francisco which came out this year and it's a really interesting time capsule in that respect because it is these these two people having this conversation about what it means to be black in a city that is getting increasingly white and there but they're kind of very different they're, they're similar but different experiences being a black woman and a black man and i think that's a, a movie that i think got a lot more attention in the wake of moonlight obviously because mm-hmm. that obviously took uh, barry jenkins to a different level but that's a really interesting rough um but very exciting first movie that definitely kind of makes good use of two uh two two good actors and a strong script that really kind of like melds the personal and the political in terms of their experiences as as characters but the broader experiences of of black people in san francisco at the at that time and another one you know just as we were talking about like romantic movies people kind of like uh, spending the day together and kind of thinking about what it means of course uh weekend the andrew hay movie which again is a movie that kind of falls into the gray area where you know, they're the two characters who are talking a lot there's other kind of peripheral people as they're going around that they interact with but really it's a story about those two people having like uh slept together the night before spending the day together and again i think one of the things that you can do really well with a movie that only has like two or three characters is you can have people characters of very different perspectives kind of like talking about their experiences and in the case of um weekend you know it's like one character who's out about being gay to like pretty much everyone in their life one of who's still closeted coming from different class backgrounds and that kind of influencing their experiences with each other in their conversations about you know what they think about being young and gay in britain in the uh kind of early 2010s and uh you know you can kind of get a bit of a dialectic going but one that's not necessarily kind of as stringent as that because it's all still rooted in personal experiences. Yeah, oh God, thanks for the reminder, Ed, because I adore Weekend. I love that film so much. And also, it's also just very nice to see Nottingham, to be honest, as a background, mm. talking of talking of a city. Uh, it's just one that's very close to my heart for personal reasons, just because my, my dad lives there, basically. That's ah. all. It's just nice to see the tram. Uh, that, was, mm. that was quite new. When, uh, when the film was made. But you're so right. And Weekend is really beautiful and feels very... The thing that I think Weekend does magnificently well is that it doesn't feel contrived. Like, yes. they feel like two real people who are... And, and their discussions... And again, which is like clipped by time because one of them is due to leave the city. It's kind of like their last mm. weekend. So it makes sense that a slightly more reserved character would open up to someone who possibly... Oh, yeah, no, it's beautiful... If you haven't watched Weekend, absolutely go and watch it as soon as you can. Um, it's magnificent. Slightly less uh, magnificent, but still, but nonetheless entertaining in the uh, one night stand day after uh, genre is Two Night Stand, starring <laughs> Annalie Tipton and uh, Miles Teller. So shoot mm. me, I watched it. It's actually one of the better modern rom-coms. It's a two-night stand, essentially, because uh, after this one-night stand, there's a snowstorm and they're snowed in and he would normally run away and she'd be like, well, but, you know, they're actually forced to spend time with each other and talk. I think it is genuinely quite funny. Um, Mm. I think Miles Teller is 
horribly charismatic. Annalee Tipton is a, is the same. Like who who knew when she was on? I forget exactly which cycle of America's Next Top Model, but she's got chops. Like she's quite believable and and goofy in a rounded way rather than a sort of flimsy uh, rom com heroine way. And it has one of the best opening sequences ever, which I think I mentioned on our episode about opening uh, opening themes. So yes, this is the second time I am mentioning Two Night Stand <laughs> on our... Well, we're kind of no-brow here, aren't we, Ed? Um, but <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, this is the second time, and, and probably not the last time I will mention uh, Two Night Stand. But yeah, and again, that doesn't feel like a play either, which I think is quite impressive. Um, maybe because it's tops and tailed with more like other people kind of in their life i'm not sure mm. but yeah that's that's also in that little subgenre and worth a watch mm. yeah in terms of um movies that don't feel like plays that use the limited class thing uh, a cast thing one from a few years ago that uh, got a lot of attention at the time and got very 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 well reviewed and then has kind of sunk from trace in recent years which is a shame was the uh, the movie all is lost with uh, robert redford where he plays a man uh, who goes out uh, sailing and gets stranded when he gets hit by a storm and it's again a survival story yeah. and one of the things that's really interesting about it is that it is mostly a silent performance obviously you know there's kind of grunts of exertion and kind of occasional exclamations of oh no not 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 in these words but things that are, are essentially like oh no what now <laughs> because terrible things keep happening to him but that's one i think that really makes use of uh having a single character in a very cinematic way because it's someone just facing against the elements you know there is uh there's no sense of a proscenium to it it's just a guy out on a boat trying to stay alive and that guy being robert redford obviously you know the, gets you a, a good performance and a good weathered performance uh from him as just a kind of a guy who you don't really know anything about he is this very elemental in that respect you just know this guy has a boat he's kind of gone out maybe a bit too far and been unlucky and now has to try and uh stay alive and i think it's it's very effective in that it's very kind of tense because it's just like like gravity really it's one person being put through the ringer and, and enduring these uh, terrible experiences but obviously in a much more uh lo-fi and uh well not literally grounded but you know kind of more down-to-earth sense yeah uh, one genre that we haven't really talked about, but which I saw a few interesting examples of uh, of movies with small casts are um, horror movies. Yeah. Because which gets slightly slightly different from thrillers, but it's obviously in the same kind of milieu. Um, but uh, a movie that makes great use of its incredibly small cast and for creating a sense of dread and suspense and horror is the Blair Witch Project. Yeah. Which obviously only has three characters who are talking into camera at various points. I think um, maybe there's... Does it, does the movie, it's been a while. Does it start with news footage of them people finding the camera? Or am I confusing it with the documentary that aired to promote the Blair Witch Project? I think it's the documentary. I'm pretty okay. certain that this just starts like... Is there not kind of like, this is what they were filmed... Right, this is what was found, yes. what found, yeah. Yeah, so that's a movie that... It's just, just the three actors who were uh, unknowns at the time, which obviously led to the sense of verisimilitude of it and created that 
since pre-internet or pre everyone having the internet that real sense of like ev- people genuinely believing it was real to an extent not yes. everyone obviously but you know a certain certainly at uh my school i remember when people were you know hearing about it being released there was this real sense that it was some sort of weird snuff film that somehow had got a wide release um that it was really a case of these kids having disappeared or whatever and um that obviously all kind of ties into the uh what, what we would now call the arg of it all you know the kind of the creation of websites uh say asking for information on the missing students all this stuff they, they went to great lengths to kind of create this sense that it was a real thing that had happened and it was very effective in that regard but you know it feels like three very real people setting out with a camcorder into the woods to investigate this local legend and then because the movie is pretty much just like close-ups of them reacting and you not seeing or uh, most of the terrifying things that are happening around them it has this real kind of sense of, of horror and really a real immediacy to it of you being stuck experiencing more or less what they are doing when they're kind of like trapped in a tent and they're hearing noises outside. And it's I think it's very, very effective in how it uses incredibly limited resources to kind of generate this genuine sense of, of terror and horror. For sure. And like that ARG thing that you say... Um... And it's interesting because it's like, where do you put your resources? And it was such a landmark for indie filmmaking. But, you know, I remember reading something a while ago in the directors being like, you know, a lot of people said, oh, you know, it's just handheld and it didn't take a lot. It's like it took two years to try and Mm. put all the clues together to make it feel to make it feel real. Um, Yeah. And again, that thing that's slowly sort of building and which reminds me. In, in terms of like just a few characters either talking to each other or kind of getting a sense of their mental state going on um whistle and i'll come to you which mm. is still one of the spookiest <laughs> things ever which essentially has a cast of one arguably maybe four because there's a couple of passing characters in like this hotel but they're not around long enough to actually develop a proper character they're more there as part of like the mise-en-scene for people mm. it is essentially just this one old schoolmaster and this very strange uh, apparition uh, that's maybe is or isn't haunting him or is it just all in his own head um so yeah i think any sense of kind of loneliness isolation or threat which you will have if you're only one one human or just a couple is ripe for yeah thriller and horror Mm. Uh, session nine is another one that i think makes good on that i think it's got a slightly larger cast than maybe the scope of this discussion but it's still only like five or six people like clearing an old uh, insane asylum of asbestos and uh things going wrong (laughs) around them as they do it as a very uh, effectively unsettling movie in terms of like trapping these people together, allowing their personal disagreements to kind of bubble to the surface as weird things start happening around them, and and also yeah, like using digital photography in a way that kind of makes it lends it like um, Blair Witch that sense of you're watching something that is a little too close to real because it's not got the varnish of film. Yeah. So we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes of Shot of Shot Recommends in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? I have got an episode of Script Notes, which is the excellent podcast 
by John August and Craig Mazin. And it's episode 425. I believe it's one of the most recent, if not the most recent. And it's brilliant. It's called um, Tough Love Versus Self-Care. And even though it is really kind of geared towards writers who are doing NaNoWriMo, which is uh, National Novel Writing Month, which mm. uh, John August, I think Arlo Finch, his, his book started out as a NaNoWriMo project. So he still kind of checks in um, every November. I think it's just such a great episode because even though it is geared mainly towards writers, it's actually just mainly John August. He, he has like five questions to ask yourself to see whether it's really a self-care day or if you need to give yourself some tough love and push through it. And, mm. and even though the five questions are sort of more specifically writing based I think you can kind of tweak them and apply them to any human being in any situation ever so I think it's a an excellent little um resource for writing and for mental health so that's my that's my nod this week fantastic I am going to wreck a movie from 2016. I have been, because obviously we're in the end of the decade kind of discussion at the moment, and I've been trying to catch up on movies that I've been meaning to watch for a while but not got around to. And uh, in that, I watched Warren Beatty's Rules Don't Apply, which is a movie about a driver for Howard Hughes, played by uh, the, the driver played by Alden Ehrenreich, and Hughes played by Beatty himself, who... Uh, falls in love with an actress played by Lily Collins who uh, is under contract to Hughes and like many of these kind of like young actresses of the 50s and 60s comes to Hollywood thinking they're going to be in a movie that probably won't ever get made but who Hughes just kind of keeps on staff and prevents from working in other things and it's a I think a really sharp and funny movie about the neuroses of american sexual politics in the mid part of the 20th century because the central tension of the movie is that uh, clearly uh, collins and Ehrenreich's reich's characters are um, attracted to each other and want to want to do something about that but they can't because if he makes a move on her sh he will be fired and if she makes a move on him then you know she'll lose her contract so it's about them trying to navigate a way of trying to work around these rules uh, which is uh, in some cases makes for these very kind of like small romantic gestures to each other which are very very sweet and it's uh, kind of a film that's kind of uh, rich with all of these kind of like character actors in small roles Martin Sheen's in it Annette Benning, unsurprisingly uh, is in it playing Lily Collins' mother and she's she's terrific um, people like Steve Coogan show up in small roles which I was very surprised by because it just doesn't seem like he would be part of that circle who would get a call for a Warren Beatty movie um, but it's a really it's a really funny, uh, interesting movie that feels kind of out of time because obviously Beatty's been around for like 60 years at this point, you know, as an actor and a writer and a director. So it kind of doesn't feel like it's in keeping with any other trends that um, are ongoing in cinema at this at this moment. It feels very much like the work of someone who has been stewing on this story for a very long time and has kind of like finally made it and maybe at this point in his career as an older man kind of feels a little more sympathy towards Howard Hughes whilst also knowing that he was clearly like a, a bad person who was uh, kind of hurt, harmed a lot of people but trying to find the humanity in it and I found it to be like a really warm interesting and very very charming movie with uh, mm. Alden Ehrenreich and Lily Collins being especially 
uh, charming together. Uh, and it made me uh, kind of sad that Alden Ehrenreich's career seems to have stalled a little bit post-Solo. So hopefully, but hope, you know, he's so young, hopefully he's got more things in his future. But that's uh, Rules Don't Apply. It's probably uh, available to rent digitally and I certainly... Uh, available to get on Blu-ray because I bought it for like five dollars from a Best Buy ages ago. So uh, yeah, it's definitely worth checking out. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places. Rate us, reviewers, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me. Bye.